Chapter Nine of Essays in Literary Studies by Stephen Leacock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A Rehabilitation of Charles the Second. It is perhaps a far cry from the subjects treated in the previous chapters to the topic of Charles the Second, but I have a very special reason for introducing his name. In my school days, Charles the Second was always my particular hero. His amiable common sense and his native good humor seemed to mark him out from the fussy, self-important egotistic monarchs who sprawl wide and on the pages of history, and obliterate from our view everything except their trivial personalities. I always felt that if I ever had a chance, I would like to do something for King Charles. I have it now. A whole book lies open to me, which I can fill as I like. I cannot conclude this volume of essays better than by devoting the last of them to the memory of one whose character I should wish to imitate, and for whose quaint and inimitable humor I have long cherished a despairing admiration. In any case, the subject which I propose to treat is eminently congenial to the peculiar tendencies of the historical writing of our time. Historical rehabilitation is emphatically the order of the day and it has become the peculiar province and the particular pride of the modern historian to expose the errors of his predecessors. His superior access to original sources of information enables him to direct upon the events of the past a flood of dry light, which reveals them in a new perspective. The lights and shadows are shifted upon the landscape of history. What formerly appeared imposing, dwindles to the enlightened eye, and figures forgotten in the obscurity of ignorance are revealed in a new and majestic stature. The estimates of character and achievement which have formed the commonplaces of our national knowledge are overthrown, and the temple of fame rudely cleared of its former inmates to make way for the smiling crowd of whitewashed sinners carrying each his new certificate of rehabilitation. Washington and Lady Jane Grey veil their shamed faces, and hurry from its portals to give place to Machiavelli and Madame de Pompadour. Thus it is that we live in an age of historical surprises. We know now that Rome was not founded by Romulus, that the apple shot by William Tell was not lying on his son's head at the immediate time of the shooting, and that America was not in the true sense of the term discovered by Christopher Columbus, who had spent eighteen years of tearful persuasion in trying to prove that there was no such continent. As with the events of history, so with the characters that have adorned or defiled its pages. In the light of our recent knowledge, we know that humpbacked Richard had no hump at all, but was on the contrary of a singularly erect and commanding figure. The name humpbacked being merely an expression of easy familiarity and subtle flattery, as who should say short to a tall man, or fatty of a man deplorably thin. The secret suffocation of Richard's nephews in the tower is not to be attributed to him as a fault. He suffocated them secretly, because to have suffocated them in any other way would have seemed needlessly ostentatious. In the same way, Pope Gregory the Seventh now appears to have been an ardent Protestant. The Duke of Clarence, whose name has suffered from his connection with a certain butt of Malmsey wine, was a total abstainer. 
the borgias were quiet people distinguished only by their love of gardening and the rectitude of their family relations on the reverse side washington was a lifelong slave-driver queen elizabeth did her utmost whether deliberately or by negligence to help the spanish armada and pitt the darling of his country died not with a prayer for england's welfare on his lips as our school-books taught us but murmuring that he thought he could eat a pork pie in so far as i am aware there are at present no historical characters to whom this process of rehabilitation or the reverse has not been applied with the exception of charles the second in undertaking the defence of so amiable a personage i need hardly offer an apology charles the second belongs to a general class of individuals who have never yet met their true deserts at the hands of their contemporaries and successors too much has been said of the heroes of history the strong men the strenuous men the troublesome men too little of the amiable the kindly and the tolerant it is perhaps the strenuous and the purposeful who keep the wheels of human progress moving but it is the broad-minded tolerance of easy-going indolence that keeps the friction of opinion from clogging the machinery of progress the strenuous men have had their apotheosis their names are inscribed in brass their busts are carved in stone on the temples and monuments of an admiring world but where is the record of the nobly indolent the names of those great men whose resolute inertia and whose self-denying negation of the necessity of effort have rendered possible the false eminence of their fellows in the history of religious controversy the real progress has been made by those inspired with an intense lack of fixed opinion the history of invention is the history of applied idleness to shirk work is to abbreviate labor to shirk argument is to settle controversy to shirk war is to cherish peace much that has been written to the disparagement of charles the second is in reality to be ascribed to the essential superiority of his mind he possessed in an eminent degree that largeness of view that breadth of mental vision which sees things in their true perspective he had grasped as but few men have done the great truth that nothing really matters very much he was able to see that the burning questions of to-day become the forgotten trifles of yesterday and that the eager controversy of the present fades into the litter of the past to few it has been given to see things as they are to know that no opinion is altogether right no purpose altogether laudable and no calamity altogether deplorable to carry in one's mind an abiding sense of the futility of human endeavor and the absurdity of human desire is a sure protection against the malignant narrowness that marks the men endowed with fixed convictions and positive ideas for the same reason it is found that the man of real enlightenment is inevitably reckoned a trifler and is accused of shallowness and insincerity while a dull man heavily digesting his few ideas is credited with a profundity which he does not possess in this lies the real explanation of the alleged mental frivolity and culpable levity of charles the second while london was burning he is said to have chased a moth up and down the room absorbed with the amusement of the pursuit 
he habitually slept during the sermons of the court preacher before whom decorum compelled his bodily presence he lounged in the gallery of the house of lords declaring their debates as good as a play he scribbled little jokes to clarendon across the council table for literary exercise he wrote riddles in rhyme no doubt a great improvement on the hymns written by his father and the philosophical treatises of his grandparent he twitted the royal society with spending all their time in weighing air and perplexed their proceedings for a month by requesting a solution of the problem why is it that a bucket of water into which a live fish is thrown weighs no more after the fish is put in than it did before the king indeed was never tired of a jest and was able to appreciate the point of a joke even if turned against himself the whole chronicle of his personal life is illuminated by his exquisite sense of humour no man has left behind him a more lasting monument of witty sayings than did charles yet his humour was always of that tolerant gentle character that bespeaks of lofty mind good jests he said ought to bite like lambs not dogs they should cut not wound as a child of seven he wrote his royal tutor i would not have you take too much physic for it doth always make me worse and i think it will do the like with you here we have already the balanced mind rising superior to the prejudices of his time he died as every history tells us with a murmured apology on his lips for being such an unconscionable time in dying throughout his long and varied career the central feature in his view of life was that of a kindly amusement at the littleness of human things the mummeries of kingship the formalities of state did not deceive him i would willingly he said one day to clarendon make a visit to my sister where can i find the time i suppose answered clarendon your majesty will go with a light train i intend to take nothing but my night-bag you will not expostulated the minister travel without forty or fifty horse i count that part of my night-bag said the king even at the great crises of his life his humour did not desert him the truth is he declared during the trebulous year of the test act that this year the government meaning of course himself thrives marvellous well for it eats and drinks and sleeps as heartily as i have ever known it nor does it vex and disquiet itself with that foolish idle and impertinent thing called business a little later when his brother james expressed his apprehensiveness lest charles's conduct might lead to his expulsion from the throne never fear james said the amiable monarch they will never get rid of me to make you king it is due to this habit of constant jesting that the quality of the king's intellect has been so sadly underrated endowed in reality with mental capacity of the highest order the very superiority of his mind led him to disparage the serious concerns of life and to attach a seemingly inordinate importance to the trifles of the passing hour but let us turn from the general character of charles to consider the political aspect of his reign under what a heavy burden of obloquy charles rests i need hardly remind the reader his memory for two hundred years has been a target for the sneering criticism of generations of historians 
piety has denounced the amiable king's lack of religion patriotism has felt its breast swell at his mysterious dealings with the crown of france cynicism has sneered at his levity and thoughtlessness and matronly virtue frowns with perennial disapproval of the most indecorous of sovereigns he was says hume negligent of the interests of the nation careless of its glory averse to its religion jealous of its liberty lavish of its treasure he exposed it to the danger of a furious civil war and to the ruin and ignominy of a foreign conquest to this macaulay adds that he was fond of sauntering and amusement incapable of self-denial and exertion without faith in human virtue or human attachment he showed says mr airy the latest of his indignant biographers a more than oriental ingratitude all his natural advantages writes mr bright were neutralized by his selfishness his own ease and pursuit of pleasure were the objects dearest to himself green mocks at his diplomacy may doubts his constitutionality and goldwin smith stands over his deathbed with a satanic sneer at his last moments more scathing than all the virtuous pen of arabella buckley writing for the benefit of beginners chronicles the crowning indictment he was not a good man gathering together all the different heads of accusation that are preferred against charles we find them to be somewhat as follows it is alleged against him that both his internal and external policy as well as the irregularity of his private conduct degraded and lowered the english monarchy that he rendered himself subservient to king louis the fourteenth of france basely accepting gifts and a yearly pension to subvert the true interests of his kingdom that he made war against the dutch and that he persecuted the presbyterians in point of religion it is variously objected that he had too much and that he had none at all some historians stand aghast at the fact that charles was a devout catholic others are equally indignant that he was not a catholic at all in such a maze of accusation it is difficult to find one's way to refute one charge is to concede another to defend the king's memory from the attack of one writer is to expose him to the polemics of another let us however consider in detail some of the graver charges usually advanced first of all may be placed the general bearing of charles's reign on the position of the english monarchy and the part he played ill or otherwise in the development of the constitution and here let me state boldly and flatly my opinion reached after forty-six years of profound reflection that charles the second is to be looked upon as the true founder of the present monarchy it is to him that a grateful and loyal people ought to attribute the survival and consolidation of monarchical institutions in england we have heard too much of william the third and george the first the chronic cough of the one and the hiccuping german of the other have been too long the object of the fervent admiration of the thankful Briton. The Protestant succession was undoubtedly a beautiful thing. We recognize the fact when at each successive coronation we invite our sovereign to swear to his detestation of popery in terms as offensively contrived as possible. But miraculous and admirable as is the official Protestantism of the monarch, 
it is not the prime consideration. The institution of monarchy itself is first to be considered. The kingship is the central part of the British constitution, the keystone of the political arch, without which all else falls into confusion. It was the peculiar merit of Charles II that in an age of unparalleled civil turmoil he enabled the monarchy to survive. To his personal tact, his suavity, his kindliness, his superiority to the promptings of revenge, it is to be ascribed that the kingship, shaken from its base in the turmoil of the civil war, was again established and consolidated. Consider the situation at the time of Charles's ascension. For eleven years England had been a republic. The divinity of kingship was gone. The nation had seen an outraged people rise against their monarch, dethrone him, and erect a successful and glorious commonwealth amid the ruins of the monarchy. It is all very well for historians to argue that the commonwealth was a virtual monarchy, that Cromwell was in reality a king, and the substance of monarchical institutions remained when the form vanished. The fact remains that in name at any rate, and the name is everything in the British system, Cromwell was not king of England. Nor had he any connection by descent, affiliation, or adoption with any previous sovereign. He was in reality merely the elected head of the people, the strong man chosen by his own ability and ruling by a delegated power, the instrument of government drawn up as the new basis of English institutions was nothing more or less than the constitution of a republic. It was an embodiment of the theory of democratic popular sovereignty, a hundred years in advance of the great political experiments of America and France. The restored monarchy, welcomed as it was with the clapping of hands and the guzzling of wine, rested on no firm basis. Placed in the hands of a king devoid of the peculiar personality of Charles II, it would have fallen again, this time to rise no more. Charles knew, the shrewder loyalists knew, and the leaders of the outgoing republic knew, that the monarchy was on its trial, that it was not of necessity the last phase of the political evolution, the concluding act of the great drama of the seventeenth century. Monk himself, who lives in history as the restorer of this royal sun to the darkened land, knew this and acted on it. He urged upon the king to fill his council with the adherents of the late regime. He put no trust in a purely monarchical establishment. He saw hovering in the background of the newly illuminated political sky the retreating cloud of Puritan republicanism that might again obscure its effulgence. Consider the matter in the reasonable light of common sense. Charles returned after eleven years of exile to a people that scarcely knew him, from whose midst he had been expelled before he was twenty years of age. By birth he was half a foreigner, by residence he had become more than half an alien. Of his new subjects a good half had been in arms, or in sympathy with those in arms, against all that was associated with his family name. Till the very moment of his coronation a veteran Puritan soldiery was under arms, welcome him as might the syncophants of the court and the devotees of the wine-vat, his ascension was only wrung with reluctance from the Puritan part of the nation. 
nothing but the strange circumstances of the moment induced them to give to his kingship a reluctant and provisional assent. At the opening of his reign a false step would have been fatal. To have played the monarch too much would have fanned to a new flame the embers of the civil war, to have played it too little would have alienated all on whose support the new king was chiefly compelled to rely. Imagine if one can, some of the other kings of the period placed in the situation in which Charles found himself. Had the narrow and malignant James, his brother, been called to the throne, the kingship would not have lasted out the year. Under the witless guidance of his slobbering grandfather, the first James, or under the unbending arrogance of his father, or the pretentious absolutism of his relative, Louis the Fourteenth, the kingship would have met a speedy downfall. Under Charles the Second, the monarchy, restored with hesitation and doubt, slowly proved itself to the nation as the guarantee of internal stability and domestic peace. The reason for this lies in the natural adaptability of the new monarch to his unique situation. He had not been a month upon the throne before the malcontent part of his nation felt that the new era was not to be one of vengeance and retaliation for the past. The downtrodden royalists who had nursed for eleven years their hatred of the dominant republicans now clamored for the blood of their enemies. They urged the king to the wholesale slaughter of the opposing faction. Had Charles listened to his new parliament, a sweeping act would have been passed for the execution of all the prominent survivors of the Commonwealth Party. Let us take the unwilling testimony of Mr. Airy on this point. Quote, In one part at least of the partial fulfillment of the declaration from Breda, Charles took an important and creditable share. There was great danger, greater danger as the days passed, that, in spite of the composite character of the House of Commons, the spirit of retaliation might even there secure a bloody satisfaction. But a far more savage temper reigned in the Lords. The bill sent up from the Commons, in consequence of an urgent message from the King, accepted, from the general amnesty, only eight of the King's judges, for life and estate, and some twenty more, for pains and penalties not extending to life. The Lords resolved that all who had signed the warrant should die, and then, all who were concerned in the murder. Again Charles intervened. He insisted upon drawing a broad line between the regicides and all others. But for his promise, he told the lords plainly, neither he nor they would have been there. His own honor and the public security alike demanded an indemnity for all, except those immediately guilty of the crying sin. In the conferences between the houses, the lords actually demanded the death of four members of Cromwell's High Court of Justice, in revenge for the death of four of their own number condemned by that court, the victims to be chosen by the relations of the slain men. They had even proposed to bring to the scaffold all who sat upon any court of justice by which royalists had been tried. It should not be forgotten that it was principally owing to Charles and Clarendon, that, after a civil war which had its roots in the deepest feelings which can stir men's minds, after a despotism which had been established in blood, and held its place amid the ruins of the Constitution by the sword, and only by the sword, the restoration of the old order was accomplished with slaughter which, 
when compared with the wrongs which seemed to call for vengeance, was well nigh insignificant. End quote. So much for Mr. Airy, whose unwilling evidence is corroborated by the testimony of practically all the historians of the period. It is impossible to overestimate the political importance of the king's opportune clemency, or to refuse to recognize the sublimity of mind to which it bears proof. More than any of his subjects, the new king had wrongs to avenge. His father's head had fallen upon the scaffold, he himself had been hounded into exile, escaping from his kingdom after weeks of imminent peril, compelled to wander deserted and shelterless, to know the pangs of hunger, and to find himself destitute and penniless, a pensioner on the niggardly bounty of continental sovereigns. Had he been sufficiently ruthless and sufficiently impolitic, he might for the moment have sated his vengeance in blood. The temper of his royalist supporters would have stopped at no extremes of retaliation. Pepys has left us in his diary an account of the horrible butchery of Major General Harrison, one of the regicides killed amid the plaudits of a sanguinary populace. I went out, he writes, to Charing Cross to see Major General Harrison hanged, drawn, and quartered, which was done there. He looked as cheerful as any man could look in that condition. He was presently cut down, and his head and heart shown to the people, at which there were great shouts of joy. It was, as already said, Charles himself who imposed his veto on further executions. I must confess, he said, that I am weary of hanging except on new offences. Let it sleep. Pepys bears witness to the king's clemency in saying, the king is a man of so great compassion that he would willingly acquit them all. If we turn from the internal history of England to the history of her colonies, we find that Charles's clemency made itself felt even there. In Virginia, the struggles of the mother country had been reproduced on a smaller scale, and the restoration of the king brought with it the restoration of the royalist governor, Sir William Berkeley. The colonists, outraged by the stringency of the governor and his cavalier associates, broke into revolt, a revolt which collapsed as rapidly as it had started, owing to the death of the rebel leader. Berkeley at once set himself to the work of retaliation, hanging and confiscating with an unsparing hand. The slaughter found no end until an imperative personal message from King Charles ordered Berkeley to stop. That old fool, said Charles, in comment to the governor's conduct, has put to death more people in that naked country than I did here for the murder of my father. Enough has been said to establish on good authority the fact of Charles II's extraordinary magnanimity of mind. As he had showed himself at his ascension, so he remained throughout his reign. To cherish resentment was foreign to his nature, which seemed incapable of harboring a personal animosity. Let us now turn from the question of Charles II's general relation towards the monarchy to his dealings with the Parliament. Doubtless we have all retained from our recollection of the history of the seventeenth century the general idea that Charles, like his father and grandfather before him, refused to govern according to the wishes of his parliaments. In this, by the way, he resembled not only his father and grandfather, but also good Queen Elizabeth, 
patriotic King Henry, and many other royal notabilities of preceding centuries. But let us admit in its full extent the fact that, from the beginning to the end of his reign of twenty-five years, Charles had not the remotest intention of governing according to the will of Parliament. Now this may seem a very shocking and dreadful thing. It may at first sight seem to carry with it significant condemnation of the king's administration. But to judge it so is to apply to the seventeenth century the ideas of the twentieth, and to confound institutions which, while preserving their names, have entirely altered in character in the course of two hundred years. We of the twentieth century are accustomed to a royal regime that has become of a purely nominal character. Our king reigns but does not govern. It is his elevated function to deliver speeches which he does not compose, to give thanks for money which he does not get, to talk in the old lordly style of his troops, his navy, the war that he means to make, and the peace that he hopes to effect. But his real business consists in laying the foundation stones of public buildings, turning the first sod of railways, planting the first trees in botanical gardens, unveiling statues, pictures, and inscriptions, giving thanks, receiving thanks, bowing, and being bowed to. These are the avocations that keep him busy, happy, harmless. To my mind, there is something eminently pathetic in the twentieth-century king with his frock-coat, his building-trawl, his spade, his tree, his statues, and other paraphernalia of his office, his false magnificence, and his actual impotence. He is colonel of ten regiments, and does not command a single man, the head of a navy, and has no power to fire a single gun, wears, in his days of grandeur, twenty uniforms in forty minutes, and finds none to fit him. But this happy device by which the jaded monarch of the twentieth century, the mere astral body of old-time kingship, is put through his paces at the bidding of a democratic nation, this is the creation of the latter time. In the seventeenth century nominal kingship did not exist, and was not dreamed of. To think it a proper ground of accusation against Charles II that he intended to govern his own kingdom, is to lose sight of historical perspective. As well reproach the England of his day for its lack of public education, its need of railroads, and the paucity of its newspapers, as object against a king of the seventeenth century that he intended to govern his own kingdom. William III himself had just the same intention, though the limitations of his situation and character prevented him from carrying it so fully into effect. Charles himself was perfectly clear and consistent in his views on this point. He intended to govern by royal prerogative, and I use the word in no offensive sense, aided by the advice of his parliament whenever such advice seemed sensible and reasonable. Nor did he by royal prerogative mean a monarchical tyranny. He meant the enlightened rule of the head of a nation, directed in the general interests. I will never use arbitrary government myself, he said to the turbulent and impossible parliament that met him at Oxford towards the close of his reign, and am resolved not to suffer it in others. His characteristic point of view, indicated with the king's characteristically kindly spirit of comradeship, appears in his reception to a group of Berkshire petitioners, 
begging him not to delay in calling a new parliament, 1680. Gentlemen, said the amiable monarch, we will argue the matter over a cup of ale when we meet at Windsor, though I wonder that my neighbors should meddle with my business. But it is not only to be remembered that between the days of the Restoration and our time the recognized duties of the British king have altered. The Parliament itself has undergone a change equally important. The Parliament of our day represents the whole adult nation, it is chosen in fair open election by the people of the realm, and when it speaks, it speaks with the voice of national authority. It has learned by the traditions and experience of preceding centuries to respect the existence within itself of a dissentient minority. His Majesty's opposition is as much a part of our working constitution as His Majesty's administration. A modern parliament does not seek by sheer brute force of a majority vote to slaughter its enemies, to impose its religion, to rob its opponents, and to victimize all who oppose it. Inspired by a just sense of its power and responsibilities, it seeks to represent the nation, and not the uppermost faction of the hour, while the facilities offered by the modern press, ease of communication, and general enlightenment, accord to its every determination the irresistible support or the irresistible condemnation of public opinion. Now look at the parliaments of the seventeenth century. I need hardly remind my readers in how far they were representative. They were chosen from a minority of the English people. Not one person in fifty had any share in the choice of the House of Commons. England, in the reign of Charles the Second was no more a democratic country than Spain. Its parliament represented not the nation, but merely the different factions of the landowning class, keen in the pursuit of their own interest, firm in the suppression of the laboring masses, vindictive and implacable in their factional strife. To have turned loose the parliaments of Charles II to govern under a trowel-using, tree-planting king, would have delivered the nation over to an unending strife of rival cliques and irresponsible factions. For proof of this, consider a moment the composition and character of the parliaments of Charles II. There were in all four of them. One met in 1660 and lasted until 1679, one in 1679, one called in 1680, and a final parliament summoned in 1681 at Oxford, where the king claimed that the air was sweeter. The parliament of 1660 has been described as the worst parliament that ever sat. This is strong language, but the authority is that of a writer of competence and long a professor at Oxford. It has been described by a contemporary as a parliament full of young men chosen by a furious people in spite of the Puritans. The youth of the members, it is only fair to say, did not alarm the king. It is no great fault, he said, as I mean to keep them until they have got beards. Keep them indeed he did for eighteen years, during which the record of their legislation, which would have been infinitely worse but for the opposition of the king, stands on the statute-books as a lasting memorial of their incompetence and savagery. Heedless of the king's earnest plea for full religious toleration, they insisted on passing the series of statutes that rendered the era one of bitter religious persecution. 
I need not recall in detail the inhuman and unjust provisions of the Act of Uniformity, the Corporation Act, the Conventicle Act, and the Five Mile Act. Dissenters and Catholics alike groaned under the scourge of parliamentary tyranny, while the victorious faction thrust on an unwilling nation the burden of an Anglican establishment. Read, if you will, of the long-born sufferings of imprisoned ministers and hunted priests, the family prayer rudely interrupted by officers of the law, the Quakers dragged through the streets of London, death, confiscation, and the iron hand of bigoted intolerance throughout the land, and you may realize the part played by the Restoration Parliament in the history of the Church. Had they been given but a king of their own complexion, or a king willing to efface himself at their bidding, the nation would have known the horrors of a religious war. Nor is it in point of religion alone that this first of Charles's parliaments showed its intolerance and ignorance. It was this same body that passed the iniquitous Act of Settlement to hold the agricultural poor in their serfdom to the landed classes, and framed the Navigation Code to render the American colonies the tributaries of the mother country. To the second Parliament of Charles II is ascribed the lasting renown of passing the Habeas Corpus Act, which has left an undeserved celebrity to its memory. This may be appreciated when it is known that the Act really was not supported by a majority, but that in order to squeeze it through the parliamentary tellers, in counting the members, counted one excessively fat gentleman by bulk instead of by tail, and reckoned him as ten votes for the bill. Much has been written in reference to the religion or the irreligion of Charles II. It has been laid to his charge as a grave crime that he was a Roman Catholic, and that at the moment of his death he received the last sacraments of that church at the hands of a popish priest. Now let us admit that, to the minds of a great many people of the seventeenth century, to be a Roman Catholic was in and of itself a heinous offence. The Catholic belief was viewed as a sinful thing, the Catholic ritual as an idolatrous enormity. This was the era when Jesuit priests lay hidden at the risk of their lives in country homes of those who still clung to the old belief, when popish priests were forbidden on pain of death to enter the northern colonies of America. Granting the full atrocity of the Catholic belief in the minds of many of Charles's subjects, are we still to regard such a creed as a crime? Civilized humanity has long since recognized that religious opinion cannot be coerced, that every man has at least a right to his own belief about his own soul. If Charles II believed in a doctrine of salvation that is still the most widely accepted of all Christian faiths, wherein lies the sin? Let us place before the devout Protestant reader of British history a reversed case. We will imagine a French king, compelled from his policy to grant a nominal adherence to the ritual and outward formalities of Roman Catholicism, but cherishing in his secret heart a sustaining faith in the Protestant creed, and calling to his deathbed the services of a Scottish Calvinist to administer to him a final sermon on the inevitable damnation of the unjust. I cannot but think that such a monarch, had there ever been one, would have met from the Protestant world no such obloquy as has been given to the unfortunate Charles. 
His name would rather have been cited among great examples of triumphant Protestantism, a sovereign mindful of the welfare of his soul, in despite of the temptations of his idolatrous surroundings. But I do not incline to think that Charles was a Roman Catholic. In point of applied religion, he was indeed a somewhat easy-going practitioner. He slept in church, this I believe being the first authenticated case of the custom, and he entertained a constitutional aversion to sermons. References to the ultimate punishment of sin were alien to his kindly instincts. The Scotch, indeed, during his ill-assorted union with them, after his father's death had cured him of all taste for theology, and the three-hour sermons to which he had been compelled to submit during his Caledonian kingship, had supplied him with a fund of compressed piety quite sufficient for all his future needs. A letter written during his kingship to his sister in Paris illustrates the king's view of sermons. We have, he writes, the same disease of sermons that you complain of there, but I hope you have the same convenience that the rest of the family has, of sleeping out most of the time, which is a great ease to those who are bound to hear them. One highly impertinent divine presumed to preach to the king upon the irregularities of his private life. Charles contented himself with a gentle admonition. Tell him, he said, that I am not angry to be told of my faults, but I would have it done in gentlemanlike manner. At another time we read of the king's pathetic complaint of an enthusiastic preacher who had played the fool upon the doctrine of purgatory and of another reverend gentleman who had compelled Charles to listen to what he called a quite unnecessary sermon on the doctrine of original sin. But after properly weighing the available evidence, I do not think that Charles II is to be classed as a believer in Roman Catholicism. His religious belief appears indeed to have been unusually broad and philosophic, the natural outcome of his absence of prejudice, and to have led him to accept tenets taken from the dogmas of many different sects, while granting a full adherence to none. His point of view in some respects was decidedly Calvinistic, in others emphatically Lutheran, while in more intricate points of religion he shows a strongly Socinian temper. There was much in his creed that was decidedly Manichaean, much that was Unitarian, not a little that was Trinitarian, and a great deal that was latitudinarian. He held, for example, that it made no difference to his future salvation what he did in this world. This is pure Calvinism. The Socinians, it will be remembered, held that it made no difference whether the soul was an incorporated substance or an invisible essence. In this, Charles entirely agreed with them. He agreed with the Lutherans in denying the importance of justification by works, but sided with the antinomians in doubting the need of justification by faith. He was willing to concede the Unitarian doctrine that perhaps there was no such person as the devil, while not denying the Anglican contention that perhaps there is. It appears in all that the king's religious view was that delicately balanced character which appreciates the niceties of opposing doctrines, but refrains from a final decision of the points in controversy. Whatever was Charles's creed, there should be no doubt of the excellence of his heart. The monster of oriental ingratitude is a fiction of ill-disposed historians. 
towards the parasites and sycophants of his court it is true he recognized no obligation whatever he estimated them at their true worth and thrust them aside with contempt when it suited his fancy to be rid of them but towards his real friends those who had befriended him in exile or counselled him well in prosperity he bore a lasting gratitude the dismissal of clarendon is often laid to his charge but the charge is without foundation for seven years after his restoration charles had tolerated the familiar dictation of a minister who affectionate loyal and well-meaning as he was never realized that the king was no longer a fugitive stripling unable to think or act for himself clarendon fell as bismarck and others have fallen a victim to the overweening assertiveness of senile wisdom to understand how abiding was charles's sense of gratitude one need but read the long list of pensions and presents to all those high and low who had befriended him during his flight after the final defeat at worcester it has been maliciously objected that many of these handsome pensions and gratuities were left unpaid such ungenerous criticism is scarcely worthy of remark the state of charles's exchequer frequently compelled him to forgo the satisfaction of his private gratuities it is at any rate a fact that not a few of the pensions are paid by the british government to this day it has become a commonplace with historians to point to the foreign policy of charles the second and in particular to his relations with france as one of the gravest of his iniquities it is quite true that he sold dunkirk to the french but this far from being a diplomatic blunder was dictated by the wisest policy dunkirk lying as it does on the french side of the straits of dover and affording to england a fortified base of operations against the french could never have permanently remained a british possession it is not like gibraltar an isolated rock it is an integral part of the french territory its retention by england would have been a standing guarantee of inveterate hostility to sell it to the french was at once the part of prudence and generosity it is not generally known but it is nevertheless a fact that no one more than charles was alive to the possibility of england's naval development or more anxious for the expansion of england as a great maritime power had he been free from the factious opposition of a niggardly parliament the era of rodney and nelson might have been anticipated by a hundred years from his youth the king cherished a passion for the sea yachting was his favorite pastime and for ships and sailors of england he entertained an unaltering affection the diarist pepys himself an official in the service of the admiralty bears ample witness to charles's profound interest in the navy the king was never too busy to talk of his ships and to make plans for the naval expansion of british power that england did not under his reign become a real naval power is no fault of charles the second the blame is to be ascribed to the short-sighted policy of his parliament with his wife's dowry he had received from portugal tangier a seaport of morocco this charles planned to make a mediterranean basis for english imperial power a magnificent project that lay near his heart but which the ineptitude of his advisers compelled him to relinquish the king himself has left us in general terms an admirable defence of his foreign policy 
some witty individual having remarked of him that he never said a foolish thing and never did a wise one the saying reached the royal ears charles's good-natured comment was that may well be since my discourse is my own but my actions are my ministers i should have liked in concluding this essay to offer a full explanation of charles's treatment of the scotch covenanters this unfortunately the limited time and space at my disposal will not allow and i must content myself with a few words of general palliation in the first place it must be admitted that the scotch are a troublesome people the history of scotland is the history of trouble i do not say that persecution is good for the scotch but it may be doubted whether it is bad for them at least it is to be noted that with the removal of religious persecution has come the disintegration and disruption of the presbyterian church it may possibly have been from a sagacious foreknowledge of the internecine strife of the free kirk the wee kirk the old kirk and the new kirk that charles was led to try to keep the scotch united in religion by offering them the stimulus of ill-treatment necessary to their peculiar temperament the scotch are never happy unless in adversity never admirable except in calamity they prefer bad weather to good rain to sunshine and everlasting damnation to the promise of perpetual bliss were this justification not amply sufficient i might urge that charles had suffered much at the hands of sermonizing divines that his treatment of the scotch met the full approval of the most devout people of the southern kingdom and that after all the scotch might have escaped ill-treatment by conversion to the church of england but i forbear to push these arguments to a conclusion as i have already trespassed too long upon my readers indulgence in conclusion let me recall a short anecdote of the most illustrious of american humorists returning from a journey to colorado mark twain informed his friends with enthusiasm that he had sojourned beside a mountain lake whose waters were of such transparent limpidity that a ten-cent piece might be clearly seen lying on the bottom at a depth of a hundred fathoms finding himself confronted with a distressing incredulity he offered to make a discount on the story at a fair compromise and to say that at any rate a ten-dollar bill might have been seen floating on the surface similarly let me say to my readers that though they may be conscientiously unable to digest all that i have told them of charles the second i shall be nevertheless amply satisfied if they will believe the half of it end of chapter nine end of essays and literary studies by stephen leacock